Hi, I'm Theo, a member of Poorly Informed, and I've been really looking forward to today's interview, discussion, whatever you want to call it. I'm going to be chatting with Rona, a friend of mine, on refugees, immigration, and her month-long trip to Calais to work with refugees there. I've been really looking forward to this. As I say, Rona, it's great to have you with us today. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you, Theo. Um, really hating the lockdown, um, the isolation that I've had to come back into. But yeah, I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. Very kind of you to ask. Um, so let's dive right in. Anyone who follows you on social media will know the rights of refugees, illegal immigration, immigration more generally as well, as things that you're really interested in, things that you really care about. Why? When did this start? Um, well, I think I probably uh, was quite, um, what's the word, sort of blocked out from it for quite a while, uh, up until probably about my late teens. I think probably around sort of 2015 and 2016, when the real sort of surge in the Mediterranean refugee crisis, for example, and the Syrian war, that was all that was on the news. And I think because of then, I wasn't too aware of what was going on, but I think I learned empathy and I feel uh, like I probably felt things for these guys. And I think it's as I've got older, obviously, I've become, you know, naturally more aware of political um, views and what's happening in the world. And I think when it really kicked off was probably in my first year of college when I looked into it a bit more. Uh, for example, for my uh, French speaking project, I did it on the basis of what has then um, disbanded um, the jungle in Calais. Oh, and right. since then, yeah, and since then I sort of fell in love with, well, not fell in love rather, but I became quite um, fascinated with the whole refugee crisis. And I learned about this charity, which I went and volunteered with. And from then, it's just been a complete fascination and it's just grown and grown and grown. And here we are. Mm. But it's not just something that you virtue signal on social media and talk a bit about and then, you know, sleep soundly in your bed. You decided to do something about it. And so... Um, last month, most of October and September, you spent in Calais for five weeks. Am I right in thinking? Um, uh, six in and a half. <laughs> six and a half weeks. I feel like you extended it. Um, I did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the refugee camps dotted around Calais, you also, also went to Paris uh, one night, I seem to remember. That's quite an experience to have. When and why did you first decide to go? Well, um, as I was saying earlier, for my French project, I learned about the charity Care for Calais, who were originally um, founded because of the jungle, um, or so it was called. And when I was learning about this, I was only 17 at the time, and you had to get a, a, a parental um, guardian or whatever who was over 18 to come with you to um, volunteer. Um, my parents weren't keen on the idea, so I couldn't do it for a good couple of years. And then obviously this year's just been so chaotic. And, you know, in March, I think I had a bit of a moment where I realised, actually, there's no good putting things that you want to do on hold. Um, so I planned and I worked and, I, um, you know, I had to leave my job back in September. And then I thought, you know, I planned from March, but that I was just going to go. So, yeah, I went over in September, but it'd been in the planning for a good few months and mm. probably in the background for even longer. So you basically decided as soon as you heard about it, you were going to go and do something as soon as you were able. I think so. I think so. And it's just been sort of a case of 
when I was able to do it I think mm. I would have loved to do it earlier but the opportunity just hadn't arisen for me yeah so what it's a big question but what was the experience of working there like it's really hard to describe it's incredible it's really incredible and I actually really enjoyed it which is a really awful thing to say because I feel almost I feel quite guilty for enjoying it because effectively I'm sort of getting enjoyment out of these people's you know these people's suffering um but I you know I think you really do see I did see the depths you know the highs and the lows of human um humanity you know it was incredible experience I met the most amazing people and yet I saw you know things which are so sobering and they make you angry and they make you sad but I just it's it's so hard to dis, um, explain but it has been so incredible it really mm-hmm. has been mm. if you I mean if you're not uncomfortable talking about it would you be able to go into some of the details on some of those sobering moments you mentioned yeah absolutely so I think that I came out actually really at a really prominent time so just before I came out um there had been in fact no sorry it was during while I'd been out in Calais the the local authorities had bought in something called um the food ban which is in certain areas of Calais and the um the department of the north we um humanitarian organizations were not allowed to distribute food and over the course of me being here, these rules changed. So it started off with certain areas of Calais. And I think in some areas we were exempt. And then I think originally they'd said it was cooked meals. And we were generally, our food packs consist of raw ingredients. So for example, you know, kidney beans and rice and sugar, etc., for the refugees to cook themselves a meal. So we thought we were immune from that. And then, you know, the it became such a blur for the rules. So, you know, we had the the riot sort of division, the CRS of the police coming up and saying, oh, no, you're not allowed to distribute this in areas which we thought we were. So it really became a battle with the local authorities as to they were literally denying us the right to sort of give these people food, which is incredibly cruel. And also um, there'd actually been quite a large um sort of vast increase in the amount of evictions from these camps so the crs which uh, i'll just i've mentioned again um is sort of the riot version of the um the french police mm. they were coming into these camps at say five in the morning something like that very early in the morning before a lot of the refugees were even um awake often without notice which generally if it's a large-scale one is actually illegal and you know taking all of these refugees um um very little belongings their tents their cooking equipment their clothes anything that they could get their hands on and trying to force the refugees onto buses and you know we've had reports that some of these buses in one of the largest evictions which occurred about a month ago it was a hospital which had had people um you know refugees in numbers of around 600 to 800 and they'd been forced on buses going as far as the Spanish border, Marseille down in the south. So a really, really long way. The hospital was one of the biggest migrant camps, am I right it, in thinking? It is, yeah. One of the informal settlements, um, aptly named because it's outside, uh, I think, Calais' main hospital. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's mainly, it used to be called Afghan Hospital because it used to be... Um, 
uh, comprising of mainly Afghan refugees, but now we've got quite a lot of a mix of um, people from the Middle East and Sudan, for example. But yeah, so that was that was a massive one because there was no warning, and the the real problem as well with a lot of the evictions is it really does breach human rights in terms of that um, the police will come, they will slash up people's tents with knives and or what you know whatever they use to slash up, so they are unusable and they will confiscate them and they won't give them back to the guys. So it's like whatever very little. Um, equipment and belongings that the guys did have they no longer have and it happens again and again and again and since that big eviction it's been happening albeit on a bit of a smaller scale but at least a few times every week and it's happened to the other camps um, there was a video um, that one of the refugees um, sent out and it was from a different camp and it was of uh, the actual eviction process that was happening. And it was a it was um, a video of him and a lot of other refugees which who'd been encircled by the CRS, who had riot shields and riot gear and their, you know, their tear gas. And they were just completely encircling them, you know, quite frankly, like animals um, in between this, you know, in between these riot shields and I think what was happening there was they were forcing them to get on these buses which are going to take them elsewhere but they, yeah it, it's this I think this is probably some of the worst evictions that's been happening recently and in honesty it's probably only going to get worse. So a couple, a couple of questions I mean that's horrifying um, a couple of questions kind of spring to mind on that why are the authorities clamping down so hard firstly on on you know people without a home people living in tents i believe it's um i think the justification is to try put people off um living in calais and attempting to cross um the channel which is quite honestly shameful because there is nothing these people are so desperate to get to the uk that you know if they're getting you know evicted every day that's not going to stop them it's just going to deprive them of even more of their human rights and make life so much harder for them um i think there really isn't much of a, a real clear-cut answer there to be honest i think there's been a lot of complaints i think sometimes um you know honestly i think a lot of people just don't like the sight of these people living in their local area but where else are they meant to go so I think it's about keeping the locals happy, but also trying to put off um, the refugees in the long term. But it's not going to work. And OK. And the second thing is, of course, what what is a day to day life for these people in the settlements, in the camps? When you when you go to the camps, what how is everything set up? Who's running it? What are their lives like? Where they're getting food from can you talk us through everything that's happening to to run and, and what it's like to live in these places yeah okay so um generally um as volunteers i'll just have to say as volunteers we're not normally taken into the actual camp um as in you know the tents and uh, the kind of community that they've set up inside of the trees where they normally um you know when they normally inhabit we generally have a general open space meeting point where they often get distribution be it by main roads for example so they know it's a kind of communal space where they know where to come however i was um i was able to actually go into the the tents and well 
into the area which they live a few weeks back when um, we were looking for a guy who had a bit of a medical situation and we needed to go into the trees to find him with uh, the first aid team and it's 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 quite hard to describe it really is just these big tents um, and sometimes they're small of course in amongst all of these trees and I think sometimes um, often groups of people who have um, who are looking to you know cross the channel they will make friends with other people and it's quite a sometimes there are quite a sense of community so they'll often have quite a few tents around this potentially a communal kind of area like a kind of place where they have a fire potentially have they cook um, but it's yeah it's quite hard to describe inside the camps so on the outside often they will have distributions so by law I think the French government have to provide um, water and uh, hy hygiene kind of areas. So, for example, toilets, um, which are often just portaloos, to be honest, and food. And there is an organisation which is a branch of that comes off the French government called La Vie Active. And they have to come, I think it's twice a day to provide um, hot food for the refugees. However, there is a lot of um, discrepancy here. Often they will just turn up for five minutes and then shut the door and say it's too dangerous. And I think sometimes it really is just a kind of tick, um, a tick in the box kind of thing. And we've had reports that the food isn't halal. It's had signs that there's blood in it, um, which is quite... Mm -hmm. Is really bad because the majority of the people in there will actually, you know, be practicing Islam and have to um, be restricted to these halal uh, safe diets. So often, a lot of the time, it's just waiting around for distribution. Um, Cali is fortunate enough that it has free public transport. So I think a lot of the guys will get the free buses into the centre and they might sort of go meet each other. Um, often they'll go and try and look for. Um, ways that they can sort of get across so I think standing outside the trains there are quite a lot of refugees who hang outside the train stations and I think that's you know some I know one who just has a, a friend in Lille so we'll just get on the train and go to Lille um, just just for somewhere to stay or you know someone to see um, and I think a lot of it is really just killing time but there really isn't that much that they can do um, so yeah. so so it's, it's not like, you know, in a comic relief video, you know, a celebrity goes to Africa and you've got these nice ordered refugee camps with tents in line and everything. It's not like that here. It's semi-chaotic, sprawling across the area. Is, is that the impression I'm, I'm getting? And it's not as though they're kind of doing anything all day. They're just waiting for an opportunity to cross the channel. Is that kind of yeah, how it so is? Yeah, sorry, I realise I've strayed from your question. So um, in terms of the organisations of the camps, it really depends on the camps. So, for example, um, we generally do distributions to three main um, camps and one of them is by um, called BMX. And one of the guys told us that they have some kind of internal leadership system where um, somebody will be voted as kind of leader of the camp and they right. will it's it's quite impressive they have sort of you know if somebody plays up if somebody misbehaves uh, goes against the rules then they'll be made to do for example you know picking up the litter this particular camp is really quite clean they have bins and they you know it is their home so they really do look after it and they have a really good internal leadership kind of system 
and it really is a big community there like they all share food and it it just is so very well organized in amongst themselves whereas unfortunately a hospital and Dunkirk for example you have quite a high turnover of you know some people will only stay for a few few weeks and then we'll try and cross or you know they'll be lucky enough to go elsewhere and therefore and it's always ethnic uh, mixing so therefore often leadership isn't quite able to be established there and it sort of is a kind of everybody for themselves but there is always I think there is quite a sense of community in all of these the camps I believe it's just um, a different kind of sense of community in different ones. Mm. Okay and you you mentioned uh, essentially trying to they're there to cross the channel and get to the UK what does that look like are they trying to well yeah what 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 forms does that take? So I think the most common is by boat, unfortunately. And obviously this interview is quite apt because yesterday we had the news that I think it was about four people um, were washed up. Um, including two children. Into, including two children. When I say they were washed up, they, were, um, they passed away. And 15 are in hospital after I think uh, the, the dinghy that they were trying to cross the channel in um, actually capsized or got into trouble. So this is quite apt. So the impression that I get from a lot of the refugees who I've spoken to, they're generally trying all the time and it's mainly at night. So they, you know, they're trying all night to get to um, get to England. And it's mainly via boat because I think boats are generally a bit more not of necessarily of an easier option, but a bit more of a viable one. I mean, um, for example, the smugglers you know not always will refugees use smugglers but I think a lot of the time they will um I think it's a lot easier for smugglers just to get their hands on you know big inflatable rafts um motorboats etc and provide those to the refugees rather than the alternative method of refugees trying to get into lorries and freight for example however that does still happen and um I'll, I'll tell you um, something which happened in uh, within about a couple of weeks that I was um, staying in Calais. We'd done a distribution at the hospital and one of the volunteers had bought her van. She lives in this van, which um, I can't describe it because I'm not very good at vehicles. But, um, you know, it's it's like a van. OK. And she looked just before we were about to leave she looked under the van and she was sort of saying something to the other volunteers and I originally because they were like looking under this van and I thought oh okay so I looked under and I thought maybe they're just talking about a cat and I couldn't see anything and then soon enough I saw this foot and this hand come down onto the pavement and it was this refugee who'd managed to I think he must have been lying on the pipes on the underside of wow. the van but I think they're just they're so desperate they'll bless them they'll try and get to the UK any any way and the fact is the van had an English number plate and in Calais you know if there's a van with an English number plate it's likely to be going to England uh, which is fortunate that she found him because actually she didn't go home for an, at least another two or three weeks but yeah it's it's a really difficult one but I think the main way that they try to go is via boats which is so dangerous but there is no cell so sorry safe alternative mm. Mm. and that kind of brings us on to um the question of uh why should we care about the plight of these people trying to cross the channel they're doing it illegally they're doing it on boats unsafely um 
it's not our problem. Why should we why should we care about them? The fact is that there really is no legal way to cross the channel. The the way that the UK asylum system works is you must be in the UK in order to apply for asylum. And at the moment, um, I think there are quite a few schemes. For example, the Dub scheme, I think that has been now completely ended. The Dub scheme was a, I've, I know little of it, but I think from the impression I got, the Dub scheme was a scheme to try and resettle child refugees into the UK from outside of the UK. That has now been ended. And therefore there are no, there really are no legal ways for refugees to apply for asylum from outside the UK. So refugees must go and take these dangerous journeys across the boats, you know, try get into lorries, under vehicles. They must do that in order to try to get to the UK to eventually apply. So when people talk about illegal, illegal migrants, there is no, in this case for refugees, you can't be a legal migrant. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's- They don't have what, passports or documents? Um, or whatever to try and enter legally so their only option is to to take dangerous routes as you say across the channel is that exactly exactly I mean it's a different case if it was because of well presumably it's probably going to get um restricted somewhat because of Brexit but if say for example one of these refugees was from Europe or within the European Union because of the the, the free travel mm-hmm. um what's it called the the tra- Schengen agreement yeah that's it um then you know they have their passport that's it they're European they can go into the UK yeah. that's fine but the majority of refugees almost all are not coming from European countries originally and therefore they must get to the UK physically mm-hmm. and in terms of why we should care the majority the vast 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 majority of the people trying to claim asylum here um, will be fleeing from conflict, will be fleeing from really oppressive governments, for example. Um, you know, their their human rights will be suppressed. For example, a lot of countries are still quite punishing towards those who identify as, you know, part of the LGBTQ community. And it's, it's a whole mix of, you know, just general human rights which are being oppressed and just general real bad quality of life which these people are fleeing. So I'll give you a few examples of the biggest nationalities that I've come across. Generally, for example, we have a lot of people um, from Iraqi Kurdistan or just Iraqi Kurdistan. Um, and the, the Kurdistan um, area is in an area in the Middle East where people from, say, Iraq, Iran, this kind of area somewhere there, don't quite feel like they belong to that country. They speak a totally different language to, say, the those who don't identify as Kurdistani. Mm-hmm. And their governments just don't want to recognise that area as, as a separate country. And therefore, they're quite oppressed. You know, they're, they're mistreated. There's often in Middle Eastern countries, there is often quite a lot of torture. For example, especially to these people who don't want to identify as the nationality which their government deems them to be under. Right, so that's okay. a case for Kurdistan. And then we have Sudan. There's quite a few refugees, particularly in the hospital camp um, from Sudan. Sudan's currently undergoing a massive civil war, which isn't really talked about too much. And, you know, there's a whole lot of brutality going on. And because of this civil war, you know, you have all the kind of things which are left um, out besides the civil war. So 
a massive recession, economic crisis, for example. And as well as um, these, Sudan generally isn't very good geographically in terms of it suffers from drought and then flooding. And it really is just quite a hard place for some people to live in, understandably. And then we also have a lot of people from Eritrea and Eritrea is actually dubbed as the North Korea of Africa. So it has a very, very oppressive government. Um, there's very little, if any, democracy. And there's also forced conscription into the military for life. And if you, you know, there are obviously consequences if you try not to go about um, being um, subscribed. Then, you know, there is there is a lot of claims by human rights watches as there's a lot of torture going on. You know, it's it's just a really, really difficult life that a lot of people are um, fleeing from. And why wouldn't they come to England? Because England generally, for all its faults, is quite good on the Human Rights Watch, isn't it? And, <laughs> you know, we are quite we are quite accepting. I mean, obviously, we still have quite a few problems, but in the comparison to a lot of countries, we are quite yeah. liberal in comparison. Yeah. If you're but, fleeing, like, conscription and civil war and being an oppressed minority, then, yeah, I guess the UK is looking like quite an attractive prospect. Exactly, exactly. So, so... They decide to leave, let's say, Sudan um, or Kurdistan or Eritrea. What happens then? How do they end up in Europe? How do they end up in Calais? So they will have to cross, say, if it's from Sudan or Eritrea, they will have to cross the north of Africa. And they'll often go into quite dangerous countries. And one which is, for those kind of countries, one which is often... Um, traveled through is Libya and Libya is really dangerous. Libya generally um, it's sort of got its own kind of civil war going on. Its government have almost fallen apart so it's got the largest coastline in Africa but because of its lack of government it doesn't have a coast guard so there is often room for militias and smugglers and you know all sorts of criminals who will try and get these um, people who are passing through the country in an attempt to get to the Mediterranean um, you know they will try use them as hostages and try using the slaves their, their abuse the, the list is countless it really is dangerous um, trying to go from the north of Africa and which is often left from Libya and from Libya although other obviously they do often leave from other countries um, it's generally by boat uh, that they will hopefully land in Europe so often Greece for example or Italy and then from there it's a case of going um, crossing the you know Europe to France and I spoke to one guy um, and he said how he landed in Italy and he managed to hide in a train. He was lucky. He managed to hide in the toilets of a couple of trains, which crossed all the way from Italy, all the way. I'm not very good with the geography, but across to Germany, X, Y and Z. And I think he managed to get into a lorry, which ended up in France. So that's generally that's quite the big consensus there. A lot of them have to leave these um, these camps on the islands and of Greece and um, Italy and then just make their way over to France. 
For every 100 refugees you have ultimately in the world leaving their home country, no matter where they're going, only about three in that 100 will want to go to England. So the media generally hypes that number up a lot that, you know, a lot of people will just find um, safety in another safer part of area of their country or into neighbouring countries or not even leave the continent. Um, but only only free. And the majority, the main reasons that people want to go to Britain is either because they have family there or because they speak the language, which I think generally is quite understandable. Mm. And and that kind of leads us on to um, the response of this government and government's report over the past decade or so to um, hordes of, you know, uh, swarms of uh, illegal immigrants, or so the papers may say, um, to to those trying to cross the channel from Calais, um, to those climbing into lorries. Um, what, what, what do you feel about the way this government has acted towards refugees, the way the government has implemented its policies towards refugees? Um, so generally, I think that the government's response has in all cases just been inhumane. So, for example, in the recent um, tragedy that we had yesterday, Priti Patel's response was mainly the traffickers saying that she was going to try and bring, you know, the traffickers um, down and reduce this kind of criminal activity, as she describes it. However, I feel like the government, in my personal opinion, are just generally dodging the bigger bullet that would save so many lives and so you know so much misery of having to try cross a channel which is allowing a safe passage because until the government has a safe passage where you do not have to cross the channel where you do not have to get into lorries where you do not have to hide under the bottom of vehicles refugees are going to continue trying and you can blame the traffickers all you like, but if we got rid of all of the traffickers, admit, admittedly, they are making profit out of these people's misery. But if you got rid of the traffickers, these people are so desperate that they would still come and mm. there would still be tragedies. And I just it's it's hard to describe. It really is just I feel that the government are just trying to pass and trying to seem that they're doing something rather than tackling the issue at, you know, the most effective way, the, the safest way for everybody, which is allowing a safe mess of method of passage or just opening up their asylum. Let, let, you know, let refugees apply for asylum from outside of the UK or, you know, or just give them a safe method. Charter, charter flights, planes, boats, whatever, um, to come to the UK but in a safe way where they don't have to go and put their children in rubber dinghies and hope that the, you know, the sea will be nice to them and hope that within a few hours they will have managed to cross however many miles and land in Dover. Mm. Mm. If you make a very powerful case there for supporting refugees, um, short of the government passing new legislation, uh, which unfortunately doesn't look uh likely anytime soon in favour of refugees and illegal immigrants. What can we do individually if we are frustrated by that, if we want to help, beyond kind of the classic virtue signalling on social media, 
um what what can we how do we back up our word and our, our our emotions with actual action to support those in Calais, to support those around Europe and indeed around a huge amount of the world right now where people are in camps fleeing home but unable to stuck in the middle of nowhere there is so much that we can do Theo so you know obviously it's quite a difficult one at this time I mean I have no commitments really so I could do it but volunteering is always one um at the moment because of covid that doesn't actually seem very appealing to many people understandably however the charity that i volunteered with care for calais has now sort of set up a kind of initiative where you can help you um, refugees who've landed in england um whether they're staying in the the military camps for example or whether they're staying in the hotels you can through the charity you can help them um there's also you know the matter of activism so being, uh, you know, being there, going to the protests. So um, Care for Calais doesn't organise many protests. However, uh, a protest I went to about a week before I came to France was organised um, in part by them, but also by Stand Up to Racism. Admittedly, it was the South London branch, but I had to go down. Well, I went down to the Home Office and there was a brilliant um, protest outside there. And it was in response to um, Priti Patel, um, presenting the uh, the possibility of using sort of navy vessels to patrol um the channel which you know is just so inhumane but there's you know we have there are so many stand up to racism branches across the uk so if you get in contact with one of your local ones they do so much for refugees as well um, there is also what I'm currently doing is you can also write a letter to your MP. So I'm currently writing a letter um, and it's definitely going to be fueled by yesterday's incident. But whether it's going to be effective or not, you never know. But it is always worth a try and making your opinions and your voice heard to somebody who's meant to be representing you. And then, of course, you've got the staple ones, which is fundraising and donating and when I say donating it doesn't have to be money uh, in particular Care for Cali are really always in desperate need of sleeping bags tents and generally a lot and lots and lots of men's clothes and shoes shoes in particular so anything you know generally you can there is always something that you can do and and anything you do would be so gratefully received I think mm, that's great Rona, thank you very much for your time, for your experiences. It's been a pleasure to listen to what you have to say. Um, I hope that we can have you on again soon. Um, yeah, so we're going to put all of those, the, the ways that we can help in the description below. So if you want to chase up on those, there will be links and uh, brief notes below. Do follow up on those. That's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Cheers, guys. See you later. If you open the questions I sent you, I have you got can bring those. them up on the screen and you can just look at those and kind of... I did in fact those. print them out for you and edit oh. and make some... Oh.